if ultimately it's about living a good life, that's you're you are asking yourself the question: How should I live a good life, mm-hmm. and what is a good life, etc.? And at some point, we we get drowned by all these by by life in general, and then like in my case, right, particularly it comes to philosophy as at first as a response to existential questions I had versus philosophy as this abstract academic thing I did as a job. Yeah, it's at, at some point I had to ask myself, what am I doing? Is, is this how I want to continue? Welcome to Stoa Conversations. Today I am speaking with Mahmoud Rashmi, a former philosophy professor in Lebanon, researcher and consultant focusing on philosophy and cultural policy. He recently wrote the book, Philosophy for Business Leaders, which I believe will, as of the release of this podcast, just have been released. Well, thanks for joining. Glad to meet you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm super excited about our conversation today. Cool, cool. Well, let's start with uh, this broad question. What's your story? Interesting question. So uh, when I went uh, into undergrad studies, I really didn't know what I wanted to to study. I mean, I didn't know what to major in. And I just took several courses, as I mentioned, organic chemistry, biology, math. uh, And then I took a couple of English and cultural studies courses. And then for some reason, I thought to myself, well, I really want to understand what a stock is. So I thought maybe finance is the way to go. So I decided, okay, maybe I'm going to major in finance. So it was a business administration, banking and finance. I signed up for a managerial finance course and then other business courses. And I thought to myself, I really like this subject, so I might as well major in it. Then fast forward a couple of years, I graduated with finance and a minor in philosophy. I thought to myself, I don't really understand finance as well as I thought I did. And I had so many questions. And I thought that philosophy would give me the answers. So I decided to do a master's and a PhD in philosophy. Uh, I eventually became a philosophy professor, went back to Lebanon, where I am from. I did my PhD and master's in Spain. Mm -hmm. And I taught philosophy for seven years. And then I noticed that academia was not my thing. So I decided to quit. And I started doing my own thing. So currently, for the past three years, I've been teaching philosophy for philosophy enthusiasts online, synchronously. And I've been doing, as you mentioned, some consulting work in cultural policy and uh, the cultural sector in general. What were some of the philosophers that first engaged you, sort of first captured you or drove that interest in philosophy? So... The first ever philosophy course I took at university was Intro to Philosophy, and I don't really remember much about that course except for Kafka, because we we read the Metamorphosis, and it stuck with me. And I had, before that, when I was 15 or something, read uh, Sophie's World, and this is the most cliche kind of story ever, and then for some reason I, I thought to myself I really liked uh, philosophy. I never thought I would study it, but I enjoyed the subject. The first, not philosopher, but philosophical school of thought that actually resonated with me was existentialism. And it was uh, when I took the second philosophy course in college, which was existentialism in literature. That was when I got exposed to uh, Sartre, Heidegger, and all the other literary existentialists. Uh, we even read Bulgakov. So more than a philosopher, it was this school of thought, like existentialism struck a chord with me. Right. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I would, If I think about how I got interested in philosophy, it was those questions that concern like the philosophy of life. How do you live? What is the purpose of life? So for me, it was, I was also interested in the existentialists. I loved Camus early on, but also this question of, does God exist? And that question mattered. Because if God exists, that would change how one ought to live, was, uh, was at least one of my key, key assumptions, right? So I was uh, yeah. diving into debates on, on that front, uh, especially with this eye of 
uh, overarching purpose. Yeah, how, how should one live? What, what should, how should I spend my my time? Was it was it your major concern? Like, how did so? Was it the main reason why you did philosophy in your case? Because I I know you studied philosophy as well. That was one of the key uh, questions. Yeah, especially early on. I think I discovered through um, looking into debates about God's existence, a whole other world of philosophy. Because, of course, you have classic philosophers takes different arguments from philosophers like Aquinas. You've got David Hume. But, of course, these philosophers have thoughts on so many other matters other than the religious ones that are also very interesting. So I think it's through that question that I found, oh, there's a, a much larger field uh, in, in philosophy of questions about epistemology, fundamental questions about ethics and politics. Precisely. So like you got into philosophy because it was driven more by an uh, existential kind of quest of some sort instead of the abstract um, fear of argumentation within the philosophical world. Uh, based on my kind of observations, there are, and I'm simplifying here, two kinds of people who study philosophy when they're in college or who take philosophy courses. Also, I've, I've taught for seven years. You have the people who love to debate and they want to argue about everything. And so for them, just mastering the logical aspect of the argumentation and then nitpicking on, on your argument is the reason why they go into philosophy in the first place. And then you have the other side, and they don't have to be uh, mutually exclusive, but it's the other side is more concerned with, as you said, questions about like, what does it all mean? How should I be living my life? Is there something out there uh, that is greater than us? Is there a God? Is it something else? What is it? And they're really concerned with these questions. And so it's it's more existential for them. And, you know, some some people are concerned about death and there are they have all these questions and they're just by anxiety and and stress of some sort and so yeah it's it's just interesting to see these two different sides of the same coin more or less yeah it sounds like you're maybe also more on the existential side at least initially that that would have drove your yeah. interest and i even wrote an article about it back in the day like in 2019 i think it was titled war and the awareness of death comes in kind of relevant even today but then in my case this is also one of the reasons why I signed up for for a philosophy course, particularly existentialism. Uh, something about it just uh, sounded uh, relevant to me. But yeah, I had lived through the 06 uh, war and, you know, uh, bombs and destruction everywhere and you see and you hear and it's just a terrifying experience and you think to yourself, everything is just fragile, right? So you start asking yourself questions. It doesn't have to be war. It doesn't have to be finance, whatever it is. But then, yeah, driven by, you know, more concrete existential uh, questions and concerns. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, to what extent do you think philosophy has served as a practical solution to some of these problems or questions that emerge or becomes a pursuit that's done more for its for its own sake right it almost becomes once you start it has takes on its own momentum how do you, how do you think about that yeah interesting question because and i also mentioned that in the book after 7 years of teaching philosophy in an academic setting i noticed that I philosophy became more of an object of study for me. So it was I was doing philosophy for philosophy's sake, not because it solved any kind of problem I had. Mm -hmm. And I had forgotten about a philosophical mindset or what had why I had gotten into philosophy in the first place. So I noticed that the with time things were becoming more abstract for me. And Without noticing it, I became ever more stressed and frustrated and bored and all the qualifiers you could think of. So 
I think the reason, like it depends because I also don't want to generalize, right? If you sure. get into philosophy because you love uh, all that abstract kind of way of doing things, great for you. If you're into academia, great. For me personally, I noticed that philosophy was something else. It wasn't just about studying who said what. It was about how this relates to me and how I can use it and implement it in my life in order to live some sort of a better life or a more meaningful life. Once I noticed that, I started reframing how I approached philosophy. So why am I reading philosophy? Is it because I wanted to publish more articles, academic articles, maybe no one will read? Uh, and I don't even enjoy writing them? Or is it because I want to read philosophy for, for my own sake, for to see how this can help me? And so in so far as practicality goes, philosophy can be practical and useful in helping us navigate problems we have in our life. But it's not, it doesn't translate directly into your everyday life. It's just a mindset that you cultivate with mental models and concepts and, and tools and examples and ways that other philosophers thought about things that would give you a different perspective that would help you navigate the problems that you're facing in life. So it's more of, um, I, I don't see it as a, a formulaic kind of study. It's more of a, okay, let me see what this person said and how it's relevant to me. You develop and cultivate this mindset and then indirectly it becomes translate it translates into your life more of a i give the example of as though you go to the gym to lift muscles right yeah the gym is not useful as such but it just helps you build your strength in order to become uh you know more agile and more fit so that you can carry out a healthy uh life right right yeah build some of those general capabilities or capacities as opposed to being a, uh, at least plausibly being a solution to a specific, specific problem, like, uh, whatever it is. Uh, yeah. So I, I see it more of a, yeah, basically it's just a mindset and I'm speaking generally here because then we can get into, the, uh, particularities, but it doesn't matter which, for example, if, um, uh, I give the example of, uh, Zeno, right. Xenof uh, Sitiam, he was the founder of uh, Stoicism. He allegedly had a shipwreck, lost his business, right? And so he was facing a problem. He had lost everything. And uh, by chance, he happened, so he asked people around. He wanted to know what he can do. He wanted to study something else, do something else. They uh, told him, uh, to, to follow a particular uh, philosopher. He got into philosophy. He started studying all the different schools of thought back in the day, but nothing really spoke to him. The guy had lost his business and he had a shipwreck. And all the other schools of thought were discussing a subject that was irrelevant to him. And so he thought to himself, okay, let me see what these people have to say. And then went on and founded his own school of thought in order to respond to the problem that he was facing. So if, if you're experiencing a business problem, maybe Zeno would be more relevant to you than say Descartes, right? So, sure, sure. so philosophy is, is like a broad kind of topic and it can be useful in so far as you match your problem with maybe a particular school of thought or a particular philosopher or a particular mental model or idea. That's how at yeah. least I view it. Yeah, yeah. Well, how do you think about contrasting the philosophical mindset with you know, proving critical thinking generally? Because of course, different people are thinking about you know, how to think better at a level that is similar to philosophy. You know, you might identify particular cognitive biases or think about what kinds of habits would be epistemically virtuous, where that's improving your ability to pursue knowledge, to what extent does philosophy contrast with improving critical thinking generally? How do you think about that? Or I should say the philosophical mindset, to be more precise. Does it contrast? Well, it may not. Yeah. 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 It's uh, So it's it just adds to it. So 
certain ways of doing philosophy. For example, if if you look at uh, Plato's dialogues, uh, if you look at a few things that, in this case, Descartes or Hume wrote, we can get into the details. But so there's a a way of doing philosophy that also helps you improve your critical thinking. Like, for example, uh, asking questions, learning how to ask the right questions, more or less, uh, trying to, as you said, uh, understand where your biases are coming from, uh, confirmation biases. So philosophy teaches you to scrutinize your beliefs and assumptions, look at a particular issue that you're thinking about from different perspectives, engaging in a dialogue with others, and of course, the different forms of uh, and modes of argumentation. So this is a, a huge kind of uh, topic, but it does help you improve your critical thinking by doing all these things. And so, for example, if you want to look at how to ask questions and how to improve uh, or your, your perspective taking when it comes to a particular subject, I would direct you to a particular dialogue by Plato to see how it is done and or different modes of thinking like where you can take Descartes for for example or Hume and they discuss deductive versus inductive reasoning and the problems of each etc cetera, etc cetera. so so yeah it's it's the, in this case we would be looking at at the form of doing philosophy more so than the content so you look at uh, this is how it improves your critical thinking so what did Socrates do what did Plato do what did Descartes do what did Hume do what did the Stoics do, et cetera, et cetera. And you see how they did things and approached these problems. And by examining their writings and how they did things, it indirectly kind of improves your critical thinking. Like you're learning different methods and ways of arguing, having conversations, et cetera. I don't know if this answers your your question, but uh, what do you think? Well, I think it... Maybe philosophy is almost broader if I think about improving critical thinking. Usually that's in the context of solving particular problems that are going to be more applied. So when you might hear this in a course context, it's going to be related to business issues. How do I figure out what's really going on here? How do I figure out what's the most uh, profitable move, most strategic move at at this point using these tools from critical thinking? If you apply it to politics, how do I think about ensuring that my political prejudices aren't blinding me? What are the best sources? How do I think about questions at that level? And perhaps philosophy is even stepping back. One, of course, it's a, a part, critical thinking is a part of philosophy, of course, but thinking about, you know, fundamentally, how do things hang together? And philosophy, of course, so many different questions. But if I think about in the Platonic dialogues, we have the euphophro and questions about, you know, what is good? Is something good because the gods say it is so? Or do the gods merely recognize uh, it as good is one way to formulate the main sort of discussion of that dialogue. And that's sort of at a level of even higher abstraction than what many people are thinking about when it comes to sort of thinking about critical thinking, applying it to a specific problem. Um, and that, I suppose, helps you approach this broad issue of we're coming back to this existential theme using philosophy, at least how I think about it, as a uh, way of life. You know, thinking about philosophy as a way of life. What is a good life? How do you achieve it? And then filling out some of some of the details as you make things more more concrete. Perhaps it perhaps that that initial difference is it's more abstract, more fundamental. I see. So, so basically, you you see critical thinking as more applied uh, than than abstract. So it's uh, critical thinking in this case is how you solve particular problems versus a philosophical mindset would be a level higher that i understand that correctly i think so yeah that's i think that's yeah. how i would see it 
See, this is the thing. This is why I was saying, so to, to maybe clarify this point, in, in this case, a philosophical mindset basically broadens your uh, your view. And so it does improve your critical thinking because you you look at a bigger picture than you originally would. And so you ask questions mm -hmm. that at first you might not, uh, or you may not have considered at first, or you may not even think about, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, yeah, it's it does give you, I mean, because you're exposed to different ways of approaching a particular problem, even if the problem is 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 uh, related to a big question like how to live a good life, it's just looking at many people uh, attempting to answer this question and to work it out and to try to figure out how to live a better life or how to apply philosophy as a way of life. Or it it kind of um, helps you widen your perspective, even without intentionally trying to do so, right? It's like mm -hmm. by just uh, getting exposed to, let's say, Stoicism, Epicureanism, skepticism, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. It's just where we mentioned like five, six uh, different schools of thought here, and they are enough for you just change the way you look at, at problems in general. So it does not necessarily improve your critical thinking by telling you or by making you a a more concrete kind of problem solver. It just uh, helps you approach these problems uh, in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good point because it gives you these different models. Like you're not always yeah. just going immediately to some abstract issue where you're thinking about, you know, how would, how would uh, Epictetus approach this question, given, given what we know about him? How would, how would Socrates approach this issue, given what we can see in, in the dialogues? And in that way, philosophy takes on almost a more concrete character where it is, you know, it's, it's done, often done in dialogue. You have these examples, of course, of philosophers thinking through problems influenced by their own personality, their historical period uh what have you and that and, and that way it's um provides uh, models living living con concrete lives i suppose that we, that we can learn from yeah yeah the, i do like the the symposium plato symposium comes to mind because it's it's quite interesting how at least in what plato does he's trying to um get people to not adopt a deductive view of the problems or the issues they're thinking about. So this dialogue, the symposium, you have a group of people who are invited uh, to a banquet and they're having drinks and celebrating without necessarily the context, but there are a group of people celebrating. And after they're done, they each are asked to give a speech about what love is. Mm -hmm. And so here you have uh, the doctor trying to define love as, you know, the physical manifestation of loves and in modern day terms, you, know, you would be talking about all sorts of hormones and neurotransmitters and whatever. And the lawyer would try to define love in modern day terms, you know, uh, marriage or being having a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is. And then you have the tragedian defining love by using a tragedy, the comedian, by giving a comic or a comedic account, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's, and we tend to do that in our lives. Like, as you said, you're influenced by the context, by your background, by your specialty, et cetera. So if you're a doctor, you would look at a particular problem uh, through your uh, medical lens. If you're a lawyer, through uh, the lens of the law, et cetera. And here comes Plato, writing a dialogue telling us that's 2,500 years ago. Maybe you're just, you have a narrow perspective in this case. Maybe it's it's more than that. Uh, have you ever attempted to think about a particular issue by shifting your perspective, by looking at things, by asking different questions, by seeing what other people uh, think about it and how they define it? And so in that sense, I see it as as something that is that improves critical thinking 
not yeah. as you said directly, but it's it just goes one step further, as you said, because in this case, if you now want to solve a problem, you're not only thinking from the narrow perspective of your specialty, let's say you're you're a coder, and I want to ask you about this, given that you studied philosophy and you code, etc. But you have a wider perspective, so you may be more equipped with different models to solve the problems that you face, right? Mm -hmm. Right, right. So would that suggest that if you're thinking about what communities include the most skilled thinkers or intellectuals that you would expect them, those communities to be full of philosophers? So if we look around today, we should expect to see you know, people who are philosophers with some of the best opinions in the sense that they, that they most capture reality about maybe whether it's investing or political matters or, of course, other matters that are uh, related to uh, the things we care about, like ethics and our uh, social norms and so on. Is, is, do you think that's right? Or, or what, what do you think about that? The assumption here is that Someone who not necessarily studied philosophy in college, but someone who has a philosophy background would make or would be not necessarily more successful, but at least help their community be more successful. Is that the assumption? Yeah, well, I suppose so. Both of us are saying, look, the philosophy. Because it's tricky. Like, I'm, this is the thing. It's like, what are, is it? Is it what are we trying to qualify them with? Are they more successful, or do they just improve their community, or they they add a different flavor? Yeah, yeah. So, well, I suppose if if we think the philosophical mindset is broader than critical thinking, should we expect philosophers to, in some sense, be more skilled thinkers, more skilled. communities of people who are full of? philosophers to be more skilled and perhaps it's people who you know it's people who have this philosophical mindset maybe they didn't study philosophy yeah. uh strictly speaking N not necessarily more skilled but then like we have examples right uh peter thiel for example studied philosophy and uh stuart butterfield if i'm not mistaken the uh, is his name the slack yeah, the guy slack. and there are yeah there, there are many examples of founders, VCs, and politicians, and people from all walks of life who, as it turns out, had a philosophy background. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be philosophy because there's this book I read written by uh, Hartley, Scott Hartley, if I'm mistaken as well. Uh, it's called The Techie and the Fuzzy. And he mm -hmm. talks about, he gives examples, a wide range of examples from people not necessarily philosophers, but people who have a liberal arts background. And the, the entire argument is that it's the argument is not saying that uh, those the techies are bad. It's just that if you're a techie and you have a liberal arts background, you would be more skilled than if you just have a techie background. And I would uh, mm -hmm. say the same thing about uh, the fuzzies, like those who come from a liberal arts background. This is, I think, how one could be more skilled or have the potential to be more skilled. It's like you simply have to be willing to entertain different perspectives and to learn things beyond what you just specialize in. So it's, this is what philosophy helps you do. Unfor not, not always. Right? Some people study philosophy and they become so specialized they 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 lose sense of reality right this is not the kind of stuff that we're talking about it's just that mm -hmm. if you use philosophy as a tool to just like you said widen your perspective then of course you would be more equipped to improve your skills in any other undertaking yeah sort of like it gives it gives you the opportunity to become more skilled which you can seize or not perhaps. exactly yeah there's um uh economist sort of generalist type robin hansen who and he he has this line in one of his blog posts the effect that he thinks all good thinkers have some background in philosophy 
but the best usually don't study too much philosophy, which I think sort of gets to this point that there is something you can sort of narrow your view on the world if you spend too much time thinking about, you know, what does Kant say about this, Hegel, or not, you know, if you're an academic philosophy, academic philosophers think in a particular way that economists don't, that uh, physicists don't share, and of course people outside of the academy don't share. So if you're purely studying philosophy, you're going to be somewhat narrow, likely. Um, and I, I do think there's there's something to that thought that you want the Aristotelian mean uh, when it comes to at least, uh, certainly what we call formally call philosophy. Yeah, I agree. But I mean, see, we also I I I I usually am careful here because the attack having been in academia, like this is no attack on academics who enjoy doing that, where we're not talking about academics who specialize like some physicists do as well, right? They mm -hmm. they have a, a narrow perspective, but there's an argument there to also uh, be put out about how this hurts research in general. Like we need interdisciplinarity, but, but this is like an argument we can have separately. But right. you're right. When it comes to philosophy or anything for that matter, it's like doing it in excess is going to backfire eventually. So it applies to philosophy and it applies to absolutely any other endeavor or pursuit. Because as you said, you could fall into the trap of just not being able to think for yourself. And it's like an analysis paralysis kind of thing. If you don't know what Kant would have said about it, it's as though you you cannot do anything, <laughs> and and it's it's problematic. So it's it's yeah, it's trying to find some sort of balance. Le reading philosophy, learning about the context, knowing the history sometimes is is helpful, but then too much uh, of it would also be problematic. Yeah, it's a it's a good it's a good line. So how do you yeah. see in, in your interactions with others, philosophy making that concrete difference either to their business? With, uh, sorry, others? How do you see when you're teaching other people, how do you see philosophy oh, oh, making okay. that concrete difference either to their, their business lives? Especially when it comes to this idea of thinking well, helping people improve how they think yeah. about whether it's a personal project or, or a business business matter like how, yeah how's that showed up in people's lives yeah teaching philosophy in an undergrad setting was completely different than teaching philosophy for professionals and people who are business leaders and who've been uh, working for at least five say like who have uh, actual mm -hmm. work experience and so i'll focus on on the latter because when it comes to undergrad students it's a completely different mindset and i'm like i I see how philosophy could be relevant to them, but I I have come to uh, this realization that I don't know uh, we we need to rethink how philosophy is taught and and I don't know we 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 can discuss this, but when uh -huh. it comes to the professionals, yeah, I I still haven't figured it out right because I enjoy teaching philosophy to professionals, and this is where the book came from. So I've been teaching philosophy, as I said, in a non-academic setting. I've been doing it on my own for the past three and a half years. And it's been a learning curve for me. I had a particular idea of how to teach philosophy and how to approach philosophy, of course, because I was uh, transitioning from, from university. And bit by bit, I started asking professionals and, and business leaders and people from uh, all walks of life and different backgrounds, etc. how philosophy could help them. Because I was not, I, I didn't really know why they signed up for my courses, right? At first it was the pandemic because I started right around the time we were all in lockdown. And I thought it was a strike of luck, maybe. But then people kept coming and they would sign up for different courses and then some courses would be more popular than others. Right. So, for example, analytic philosophy, only six people would sign up. But then I would offer a an existentialism or I, 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 I titled navigating uncertainty or the quest for meaning. And then 20 people would sign up. And so clearly I was having you know, signals there. And uh, 
over these three years, I noticed that at least when it comes to people, to professionals and business owners and business leaders, there are particular topics where philosophy that, that they reflect on or problems that they experience that philosophy can offer some sort of practicality or actionable tips mm-hmm. and help them navigate. And this is this is why I wrote this book. So these broad kind of topics are one, questioning our assumptions and asking better questions and shifting perspectives. Uh, and we can apply them to businesses shortly. And then the second part is navigating uncertainty, handling stress, and the quest for meaning, whether in your work or in your life, and ethics. So these were like the broad kind of uh, themes or topics that almost all professionals and business leaders related to or resonated with or were interested in. And then I started, so for, for the past these three years, I've been talking with them. I mean, when it comes to questioning assumptions and to asking questions, and to identifying problems, it's like when you're when you're in a business setting or when you're running a business and you have a problem and you want to solve it, it's interesting to see how many people either don't question their assumptions or take their assumptions for granted or fight over things with others. You know, it's like you're you're in a business meeting and everyone is fighting. And once they learn a few things about how to about the importance of asking the right questions and questioning their assumptions and beliefs, etc. And they see that it could be done in in a safe space, kind of like no one is going to cancel you if if we share different ideas and perspectives. Then they start relating to it in a different way. So they they think to themselves, okay, there's there's something there, there's something to it. Similarly for uncertainty and for ethics as well. So it's just interesting uh, that uh, in in my case, it's not what I think philosophy could offer. It's what I saw philosophy could offer saw, based on yeah. the problems that they were having. Yeah, I think that's, what the first point brings to mind is many of the people we mentioned who have a philosophical background and some amount of you know, material success and in investing or business or what have you. Peter Thiel, Reid Hoffman, many of the tech people especially have this approach where it's almost like first principles type thinking where they strip away a lot of the assumptions, how people commonly think about. I think the Stuart Butterfield case is he is now the CEO of Slack, but originally he was building a video game company. Noticed that their chat client was actually really good and had the the flexibility to realize oh this thing we built on the side is actually much better than this entire what i thought the purpose of this company was which is to make games and probably many companies you know you you just get you get habituated very easily uh, with with the people around us you know, particular way of speaking particular way of, of thought so if, if I, I, I think that is a nice example of something that, you know, of course, it's easy to say, of course, you should question your assumptions, but actually taking the time to to do it is, a, is another matter. Yeah, definitely. And, and doing it in a way that uh, does not kind of um, anger anyone or lead to, to you know, any, any brawls or feuds or discussions between people and but it's 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 really quite interesting because i'm i'm fascinated with the topic of asking questions for some reason because i've given this workshop twice now and you see people wanting to learn how to ask questions or to ask questions for example but then somehow they either prefer not to or are discouraged to or they are they couldn't be bothered to and so instead of maybe asking questions about how to solve a particular problem they would just they couldn't care less like in the case of Stuart Butterfield he asked himself okay 
is there something else I can do here in order to pivot and create something else? Well, you need to ask yourself these questions and you need to be able to take a step back and question your initial assumptions. If he had doubled down on his project or there are many other examples that we could give, it's you would end up with a probably failed business because you did not have, you did not ask yourself a question or questioned your assumptions, tried to find a different way of doing things. And it, it, it happened with me, right? If I, if I had stuck with the way, like the first course I ever gave, as I said, existentialism and literature, if I had never on, online, if I had never questioned my assumption about the way I approached philosophy, I probably would have gone out of business because no, this is how philosophy should be done. You know, if I hadn't adapted and asked those who signed up questions about what worked, what what didn't, etc., seeking feedback and and the likes, I wouldn't have grown personally. I wouldn't have been exposed to new ways of doing things. I wouldn't have had different perspectives. I've been learning from all the people who've been signing up for my classes, and I like almost much more than we than I would cover in a class, right? So because I have like 15 people in class, each with a different story and each with a different experience. So, so I'm, I have 15 people sharing their experiences with me and I'm just sharing the experience of Zeno, let's say, or Descartes, right, right. Or, you know? So it's, it's just interesting. So yeah, it's, asking questions is, my God, and and... And yeah, navigating uncertainty and handling all these issues. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wonder if some of the hesitancy around asking questions is just that it so often does create that uncertainty that can result in either conflict Tension. with others or exactly. Yeah, yourself. You you know, making a large change uh, to your own life, perhaps. And there is some, yeah, some amount of, of risk. This is spot on, exactly. And this is this is precisely why I started with with this first part because it's you need to be willing to to jump out of your comfort zone in order to ask questions because when you're asking questions you're learning new things one before you're even learning new things when you're asking questions it can either imply that you're trying to solve a problem that you have and you're trying to figure out how or you lack knowledge and both of these things can be problematic nowadays because everyone is an expert now. So, uh, and and you see it in as in in an example as simple as being in a classroom, right? And a student asks you a question, and as a philosophy professor who's an expert in philosophy, some people shy away from saying "I don't know" or mm-hmm. "Let me figure the answer out and I'll get back to you." So. Apply this to a more serious context in a company where supposedly they hired you because you're an expert, etc. So asking questions to clarify a particular thing or to try to gain knowledge, it's as though you're admitting to yourself that you don't know enough. And of course, this has all sorts of ramifications. You need to improve your skills. You need to read. You need to just hone your skills and, and knowledge in general. And then all this leads to risk-taking as well and uncertainty, as you mentioned. And so also how, we, how can we deal with that? Yeah, well, so I do think if we take this, put, sort of put this and think about this through the lens of Stoicism, what the Stoics are ultimately concerned about is pursuing knowledge. And to do that, one, I think, needs to be willing to think clearly ask good questions, not be afraid to look dumb. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a, there's a real skill to both of those things, both crafting your own questions, knowing when to ask them well, knowing your social roles so that you, you can, you know, skillfully ask them in the right context, especially when you're de- dealing with others. And, you know, personally being the kind of person who is able to, to maybe even take some amount of reputational hit or over at least overcome the avoidance I think a lot of us have towards, especially people interested in intellectual matters, philosophical matters towards uh, looking like we, we don't know something that we should, which I think we, we, you know, we probably often overestimate how much of a reputational hit we'll make, we'll, we'll suffer when, when we do ask the question. But uh, nonetheless, that there, is that there is that skill. 
so I think, you know, if you're thinking about pursuing knowledge, of course, asking good questions is a matter of that. Being the kind of person who can ask a question, you almost put it in a, almost an Aristotelian way, you know, the right question at the right time in the right way. It's a, it's a tricky art. And definitely something a lot of people struggle with. I, of course, yeah, I can think of myself in particular times where, oh, I should have asked that question earlier, which at least indicates that, I, I, yeah, I, was, I, had, I had more to learn. It definitely, it's, it's definitely interesting, especially in a context where you're dealing with many people, because you did mention asking uh, the right question at the right time. I mean, it's, it's an art that one... Uh, has to learn, but asking not only others, asking oneself as well questions. So where, when do you ask yourself the question, is it time to move on to something else? It doesn't have to be, you know, right. big problems and, and being creative and, and solving the next uh, big problem. It's just as, as simple as when do I uh, pivot? If, if you're building a business and it's not working out and but you insist you're doubling down and then you have to commit to it because you have different philosophies, right? People who tell you diversify and others who tell you if, if you have an idea, you need to put all your bets on it and, and stick to it and work long enough and hard enough in order to succeed. So this is a thing. When do you ask yourself the question, should I sacrifice my idea? Should I do something else? Should I move to a different country? Should I? So it doesn't really have to be, you know, that abstract. So just simple questions that we sometimes are afraid to even ask ourselves because we think, well, we'll figure it out. Maybe not today. We'll we'll figure it out. And then five years later, you're like, oh, I should have done this. I should have done that, etc. So it's uh, yeah, and it applies to jobs. Life decisions, everything. Yeah, yeah. I suppose you have the, the image of the the meme, of course, the dog saying, "This is fine." Where I think, or, you know, just and we're refusing it's, to ask a question or look at reality. And uh, yeah, but this is this is really where it's coming from. It's just also looking looking at, as you said, reality and trying to figure things out. It's is if ultimately it's about living a good life. That's you're you are asking yourself the question: How should I live? A good life and what is a good life, etc. And so, some point at at some point we we get drowned by all these by by life in general. And then, like in my case, right, particularly when it comes to philosophy as at first as a response to existential questions I had versus philosophy as this abstract academic thing I I did as a job. Yeah, it's at at some point I had to ask myself, what am I doing? Is is this how I want to continue? So, yeah, and it's it does induce also all kinds of change and uncertainty with regard to the future. But uh, here we are, mm -hmm. right, right, yeah. And of course, there's always the issue: should one stick to action, or is more deliberation needed? Should one start the new venture or continue to persist? And the fact of the matter is that. You know, there's this rule of advice that for every good piece of advice, someone needs to hear the exact opposite, right? And it's always yeah. going to be tricky to figure out, are you the person who should be deliberating more often or not? Are you the person who just needs to stick to it? Or do you need to learn how to, how to quit? Yeah, and sticking to it, you can, you can really stick to something insofar as you're aware of the consequences as well. So... This is what's mm -hmm. going to happen instead of, oh, things are, all, are are going to be great eventually if I stick to it. Well, maybe not. Maybe things right. are not going to go the way you wanted them, just like in the case of Zeno. But uh, but yeah, and then I'm, I'm, I'm curious about your decision to, not only your decision, but also the transition, your transition into the industry, uh, kind of, because you, you did philosophy. You, you mentioned and then uh, you switched. Was it a premeditated, like, what was it decision in the sense that you knew before you studied philosophy that this is what you were going to do? Or was it something that happened afterwards? And what got you to, to pivot? And how did you 
Yeah, it's something that happened afterwards. I think I essentially learned that I didn't need to become a philosopher. I went to graduate school with the view that I was someone who couldn't see myself doing anything else but practicing philosophy and being a professor of philosopher seemed like the best way to do that at the time, if not the, the only way. And then going to graduate school, I think, was in many respects a wonderful experience, but also learning that you know, I can actually do, there's a whole other world of um, different forms of inquiry, different kinds of living that I, I would benefit from exploring more. Um, and then also realizing that in some ways I overrated what the academic life would be like. Um, yeah. And I think those, those two features, that willingness to see my, the possibilities as in fact larger than they were, and then realizing that um, becoming an academic philosopher in some ways an excellent role, but in other ways uh, I might not be, be best suited for the next you know, three years of writing a dissertation going through the gauntlet of trying to find an oh. academic position in some different place um, when well, I could be, I, yeah. you know, I can be building new products, reading philosophy on my own time, discussing philosophy with people in, in the world outside of academia. And there's, there's a, a lot of people who want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. You mentioned reading philosophy first read i i presume reading philosophy you're interested in at your own pace and time in my case for example over the past two years i have not read philosophy and even though i i spent my time on on twitter telling people to, to read philosophy but the reason why i was not reading philosophy was because i had read so much philosophy that I was not reading anything else since between 2010 and 2021. Seriously, mm -hmm. it's, uh, that's, that's all I, I read. The philosophy books and philosophy articles and German idealism and, and Schelling and, and all these people, right? And over the past two years, I, was, I got exposed to a different kind of genre in general uh, or, or, you know, different books. So I've been reading all sorts of uh, uh, stuff about topics I did not know I was interested in, or I rediscovered my interest in all these topics. And basically, that's what I've been doing. This is what helped me also write the book, uh, because yeah. it took me some time to get out of the academic mindset and the academic way of writing and uh, develop a different voice, a new voice that was more real that was clearer and more relatable to, to people. So I've been reading uh, economics, psychology, uh, business, and even what would be considered as self-help books. It's like I've, I've been reading all sorts of stuff. If the book kept me interested, I would listen to it. I wasn't even reading. I was more listening to audiobooks. So it's it's been an interesting journey. And uh, one of the books that, that stuck with me was this, Scott Hartley's The Techie and Fuzzy. And then books like mm -hmm. A New Way to Think by Roger L. Martin, and then books like The Book of Beautiful Questions and A More Beautiful Question by Warren Berger, and, and all these people. So it's it's been an interesting journey for me to not be reading uh, your typical kind of philosophy stuff and be reading stuff that was easier to understand and more relatable, you know? Uh -huh. So if you read if you read Descartes, it is relatable. I'm I'm not talking about the the like the classics. I'm I'm talking more sure, about sure. you know the hardcore academic stuff, the that you have to read uh, when when you're in academia. My God, and the conferences you attend and stuff like that. it's not my thing. Whoever is interested, great for you. Like I'm I'm happy for you. It wasn't my thing, and it was making me uh, miserable as well. Like I thought I hated writing. Right. But then I noticed that it's I did not hate writing. I love writing. It's just I love writing about things I'm interested in and in a way completely different than how you should present it in academia. Yeah, yeah. That's a I think that's a such a crucial insight that 
people will say similar things about math. You know, they hated math and they learned it in school and they thought they'd never be good at math. And then for whatever reason, stumble upon a teacher or a book later in life and realize, oh, this is what math is. And I actually like it. And I'm actually not that bad at it. And there is something to that idea yeah. coming back to shifting different perspectives, trying things in new ways that you can learn something that you thought was so familiar or so obvious. Seriously, yeah, that, this is what, and, and you start believing these things. It becomes a belief. <laughs> you incorporate it into your daily life and, and worldview. Then you're like, no, writing sucks. No, it's not the writing. It's, it's how you're doing it. It's what you're doing, the, the, the topics you're writing about. It's it. So yeah, whatever it is you're doing, anyone who's listening to this, try to shift your perspective and ask yourself, is it the topic? Is it the form? Is it the way I'm doing it? Whatever it is, this is, I think this is, this is also stoic to, to tie it with, with the podcast itself. No, it's, uh, to what extent is this stoic? I would ask you, you know, more than on these. No, I, I think that's, a, that's absolutely right. If you think about, again, this focus on knowledge that the stoics have and being able to overturn some of these, these common assumptions just as, as the project of becoming more knowledgeable. And if we look at some of the stoic practices, Marcus Aurelius it has some great examples of shifting his perspective about how he views common things, either by breaking them into their parts, you know, seeing the purple robe merely as a uh, sheep's wool dyed in the blood of a shellfish, or zooming out and trying to get uh, a larger perspective from by looking down on things, seeing things in their context of a much larger space of time and history. So I think I think that's that is a, a very stoic, very stoic approach, um, as as well as a, a useful. You get this useful thoughts I think from other Hellenistic philosophies too, like the, the skeptics, of course, their ability to generate skepticism by having believing, finding the best arguments for some proposition, the best arguments against. Where I'm not a skeptic by any means, but I think that exercise is so, so neat. Uh, and it can be a really productive and generative one for thinking about overturning assumptions, or even if not overturning assumptions, thinking of new things, new things to try. Yeah, and it, uh, and so far as one maintains the maintains the balance as well, right? Because we've we've talked about uh, not taking things to extremes, because some people take the skeptic's way of looking at the world examining the argument and the counter argument can keep searching etc and then they apply it to absolutely everything <laughs> deciding yeah. whether they have a pizza or a burger no it's like this is it one has to also learn where to apply it how to apply it as as you mentioned with regard to questions as well knowing when to ask the question at the right time etc and my question to you is how do you because you mentioned that you're developing this application to help uh, people also uh, practice stoicism, if I got that correctly. And so how do you incorporate stoic teachings into into that? Like, wh what's what's the app like? Yeah, the app's called uh, the app's called Stoa. It's uh, we've got a approach that combines mindfulness, meditation, stoic philosophy, and thought from cognitive behavioral therapy, where people are taught the basics of the philosophy through reading texts, listening, and then performing these exercises. And initially to sort of address some problem they have, a concrete problem, whether it's anxiety, meaninglessness, procrastination, and thinking through, you know, what some of the best thought from the Stoics to help approach these questions and then enriching those with some of the, the, the some of the modern work that has been inspired by the Stoics as well. So that's the that's the approach that the app takes. Some people like to take it just sort of at the practical level, take what they like from Stoicism, directly apply it to their life. Other people will like to dive in even deeper and you know spend time reading, reading the texts, even perhaps even becoming in some sense. You know, a stoic and taking that on as a, as a full life philosophy. So that's, uh, and we, we want people to be able to do both of those things with our app, be, have it be a useful tool for people to 
whether it's cultivate resilience, uh, use stoicism to approach some of these modern problems of life, or even more broadly, be a philosophy that is a philosophy of life, a source and a source of source of meaning that they can, that you can learn about, engage in and practice. Yeah. Interesting stuff. And this is, this is the tricky thing about philosophy, right? Because as we mentioned uh, at the beginning, philosophy is a, is a very broad field and you have people interested in the form of doing philosophy, as, as we said, the arguments, etc. You have people who are interested in studying the texts closely, reading the texts and uh, analyzing them, interpreting them, etc. And then you have people who study philosophy or are interested in philosophy because they, they want to use it to apply it in their uh, lives. And that's, that's one of the issues I've been facing how to this is why my courses are always synchronous because it it relies heavily on conversation discussions with people uh commenting a quote but then explaining it and then see what everyone has to say and then from this discussion just like plato's symposium people would would learn a thing or two and then it's mm -hmm. helpful the each and everyone who's who's there, but because they apply these lessons to themselves, like they they tailor them to what they're experiencing. If I do asynchronous courses, I always feel like something is missing. So this is why I'm asking you when it comes to an, an app, right? Because it's it's difficult, I think, to, to translate the practicality, but also the academic aspect of it into something that works yeah. for people so yeah yeah it's, i think it's a balance i think many people they're not looking for that academic approach or they're not even looking for something that theoretical they just have anxiety they've heard stoicism as a useful solution to that and that's how they went to interact with uh the app so i think we we went to ensure that people have the approach to do that and sort um they're not scared by too much philosophical language or not bothered yeah. by all these like theoretical questions, what have you. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's, it's, and then, but also show that we have the depth, we have the sort of the philosophical grounding, or we've thought about what the, the content is enough that people who come with that more philosophical approach or people who develop that over time uh, continue to uh, be able to, to learn from us. So, and we just, yeah. we just started doing synchronous courses as well. So I think. Nice. Yeah, I saw you. It was on Maven, right? Yeah, that's you, right. You launched it yeah, on yeah. Maven. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I know you might now want to leave soon, but uh, what got you into stoicism? Um, the so I the the main thing that got me into stoicism just is Nassim Taleb's book Anti Fragile. He talks about Seneca Seneca having this approach to managing uncertainty that is you know something that thrives in the face of fortune as opposed to merely withstanding withstanding it or being resilient against it and i that model is very striking to me i went back to read seneca uh and then read marcus aurelius and marcus aurelius i thought was very powerful there's something about his approach to life thinking about things that a with a focus on acting virtuously, seeing things as they are, not being harmed by things themselves, but our opinion of them. There's ideas. And then Marcus Aurelius also has a almost, well, he does have a spiritual side to his writing. He's talking about nature, the way things flow together, compose the whole that I thought was evocative and really, really rather beautiful. So through, from that, I got more of a, uh, a st stronger interest in the philosophy. Saw how it'd be useful as a as a philosophy philosophy of life. So that's a, that's yeah. a quick story there. Yeah, nice, nice, interesting. I think we have a similar cool. story there. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you have anything else you you want to add? No, I I really enjoyed uh, the conversation, and this was fun. So thank you again for the invitation. 
Thanks again for listening to Stoa Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to practice Stoicism with Michael and I, as well as others walking the Stoic path, we are running our three-week course on Stoicism Applied. It'll be live with a forum, interactive calls, and I think will be an excellent way for a group of people to become more Stoic together. So do check that out at stoameditation.com slash course. And if that's not to your fancy, you can find links to the Stoa app as well as the Stoa letter, our newsletter on Stoic theory and practice at stoameditation.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time.